Support for this podcast comes from the patrons at patreon.com slash Serlin. Hello and welcome to Serlin on Game Design, episode 14, Codex. And with me today is Leontes and Ephotix. Hi How's guys. How's it going today, guys? Yo, yo, yo. Are you super excited for Codex? It's about damn time. <laughs> yeah. It is about damn time because we've been making this game for literally more than a decade. It's ridiculous. It's one, one more to use, yeah. <laughs> All right, where do we even begin? I mean, we have to tell people about this game, and I'm actually struggling a little bit because there's so many different angles we can come at. We should start by just summarizing, like, basically what type of game it is. So it's a customizable card game, sort of. But it is not a collectible card game. It has an RTS theme, like a real-time strategy theme. Video games like Warcraft 3 or Starcraft. You guys want to round out this description? Give any other like high-level info before we go deeper? Yeah, that's kind of it. It's like a real-time strategy game. You know, Serling Games often trying to make interesting games by removing mechanical requirements, like not needing to have high dexterity to play a fighting game. You get that in Yomi. This is kind of like... What what would happen if StarCraft or WarCraft 3 didn't have a huge actions per minute requirement, not a lot of dexterity, but you took all the strategy from those games and then sort of diffused it down to a card game format? Okay, well, let's start by talking about the theme. I know that people are actually going to care a lot about hearing mechanics since this is a game design podcast. We can definitely get into that. But let's just start at, at the most surface level. So it's a real-time strategy theme. What does that mean? What elements of real-time strategy games are in there that we're capturing. So build order is a big one. Fog of war is another one. But really, it's I think it's the versatility that you get when you pick a race in a real-time strategy game that's nothing like when you pick a deck in most customizable card games. And our Kickstarter video highlights that a lot. Sure. Yep, yep, yep. The amount of variety you get with any faction you choose is vastly higher than what you'd expect from a deck of, you know, Yu-Gi-Oh! or Magic the Gathering. Yeah, I think it's because we're just coming at this from a totally different angle. It's sort of like a bizarro world, like what if you did everything opposite of CCGs, just to see what happens. <laughs> and mm-hmm. it, turn, it, it, it turns out that we get to make different trade-offs and have different advantages because we're caring about different things. So in most customizable card games, new cards are coming out constantly and you're changing your deck all the time on purpose. It's like the point. It's, that's what the fun is. And so if you imagine those games where you just played a particular deck over and over and over again, it's not going to last years and years because it wasn't ever supposed to be played like that, right? I mean, that's not even the point. But in StarCraft it is. You pick Zerg or you pick Protoss and you can play that same quote-unquote deck over and over and over. And that's something I was really interested in capturing. And as a historical note, we actually tried different ways of doing that. My very first pass was to ask the question like, well, why can't you do that in a card game? If I give you a CCG deck from another game, not just Magic, any of them, why does it kind of run dry after a while? It's because there's not enough pieces, you know? Like you're seeing the same pieces over and over again and you don't quite have the nuance you do in like a fighting game where it's in real time. You can move specific numbers of pixels. You can change your timing by a 60th of a second. When you don't have access to things like that, it's harder to make there be a lot going on. And so at first I thought, well, we need to make it more complicated. (laughs) 
you know, we need to add a new layer on top of the kind of games that are already there. And we did that in some early versions and it just was impossible to play. This style of game is already complicated. So the prospect of making it more complicated, it's just like melted your brain. Yeah, I, I think I remember those days. I actually don't think you never... Uh, and I might have played like another version uh, that was much more simplified from what you're saying, and it still was really mind-bending. Yes, I know what you mean. So I'm talking about even a much more complicated version. Nice. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, and, and it had to do with adding a bunch of... Like a new resource on top of the game that allowed anybody to counterspell any effect at any time. So it was really good for strategy. And it was starting to get where I wanted to make it something you could play even more because there was like more ways to outplay the opponent. But it was just really frustrating to play. So that's not the direction we went at all. We went a different way, which is to capitalize more on breadth, the breadth of things available to you. So when you play a game of StarCraft, you have a whole bunch of Zerg units you can make, but you don't make the same ones every time. And in a CCG deck, you kind of have to tune your deck to do just one thing really well if you want it to be a competent, powerful deck. So I kept looking for ways, how can we get outside of the deck? How can we reach outside it to get to a larger pool of effects? And sounds kind of like a sideboard in other games. But what if we expanded the sideboard and made it bigger and bigger and bigger and it eventually it's in a codex, which is the name of the game. It's in a binder of cards. And that binder of cards is analogous to all of the units you could build as Zerg or something. I think it works out really well. There's a little bit of precedent with this sort of gameplay in card games. Looking at deck building games like Dominion, Puzzle Strike, right? Mm -hmm. Is you have these games where you start out with some limited resources and some very simple tools, but you want to see what your opponent is doing. You want to react to the position on the board, and then you're going to start to take different things, different options from a known pool of stuff and slowly add it to your deck to increase its power and then start to remove some of the weaker elements. So this is actually extremely analogous to how real-time strategy games play. And I remember years ago when I played Puzzle Strike with a friend of mine, I think we played for like six straight hours, just like Midori versus Rook, like literally just that matchup and changed out the bank a bunch and just did a lot of stuff. And we played for many, many, many hours and had a really, really good time. And about halfway through, we both looked at each other and said, this is like StarCraft. Like, I'm doing an economic strategy here. You're doing like a rushdown thing. Sometimes if I see what you're doing, I'll turtle up and I'll, I'll try to be more defensive. But ultimately, the build orders that came into play in a deck building game like Puzzle Strike felt to me a lot like playing a real-time strategy game. So Codex kind of takes that a step further by being more flavored like an RTS game, having more of a combat element, having buildings and units and you know, upgrade paths and all this different stuff that it just really, really hits the genre very, very, very well. Yeah, Puzzle Strike is uh, similar to StarCraft in some ways. I wrote an article about that. We have this whole concept of the triangle of different things you can play for, like Econ or Rushdown. So I see exactly what you're saying, though we should point out that in Puzzle Strike or Dominion or other traditional deck building games, you're building from the same pool. And the idea here is you're not. It's asymmetric. You bring your own set of cards that you're building mm -hmm. from. That's really important to me to get even more asymmetry in there. It allows the matchups to be way different when the entire pool of cards I'm pulling from is different from yours. So there's a bunch of other things that similar to RTS. So your economy, you actually have to spend money to hire workers and workers give you gold every turn. In most CCGs, you just play a resource, but here you've actually got to invest in it just like an RTS. So there's some tension about, well, should you really 
play a worker every turn. It costs a card and it also costs a gold. You don't have to use that card on the worker. You could use it on something else. So there's an opportunity cost there. So I kind of like that, that you're really investing in your economy. Each turn you have a pretty hard decision about that. There's also the fog of war element. I think you were just touching on that, that when you are building your deck from your pool of cards, when you select the cards at that moment, your opponent doesn't know what you've selected. They're only going to know what you're adding to your deck a couple turns later when you actually start playing that. So there's this lag time and that's like the fog of war. It's like they are building stuff over there in their base and you don't know what it is right away. So you can't instantly just counter them. You can sort of see, oh, I think they're going in this direction now. And so now I'm going to go in the opposite direction. But there is a bit of a lag time there. Uh, another feature that just turned out really nice, wasn't even exactly on purpose, but early on we latched onto this, is that this concept where you spend any card you want to play a worker, it actually works really nicely with the whole fog of war thing. And what I mean by that is, let's say that you go a certain direction with your tech and I start to go one way, but then realize, oh no, you know, I'm starting to see what he's doing. I, I want to shift gears a little bit. Well, those first couple cards I got, they're not just dead. They don't cripple me because I can play them as workers. So I have a little bit of leeway there in deck building that lets me take a few risks here and there. And even besides that, you don't actually play all the cards in your hand every turn. So you have a fair amount of leeway in this dance you're doing back and forth with build orders. So like another thing that Codex has is the heroes and the command zone. And those remind me a lot of Warcraft 3 and how you can use different elements of the same faction, but in different ways, depending on the matchup you're in. Like I remember playing Warcraft 3 a lot and I would use like Archmage against certain races, but then maybe it's not so good against Undead. So I'd probably want to run Mountain King or whatever. And you get kind of the same thing with Codex where even if you think you have this starting strategy that you were going to use, you can kind of derail and go a totally different direction based on the hero unit that you use. Heroes aren't units. <laughs> oh, hero unit. Yeah, correct. <laughs> Not in the codex terminology. Yeah. So yeah, heroes are definitely a big part of the game. And I, I mentioned that this was like a decade of development. And the first few years was a struggle to figure out how to get heroes to work. And then one day they did. The thing from the very beginning I wanted is... I wanted heroes to matter. I wanted you to care about them because it's just fun. It's fun to have personality and characters in a game instead of just all kind of generic units. So I wanted something to stand out just for the fun and flavor of it because we've made a bunch of other asymmetric games with characters. But in a lot of earlier versions of the game, we would play it and then we'd look back at what we just played and say, was the experience better or worse given that there's heroes compared to if we just removed it and over and over the heroes were tacked on they were not really adding to the experience <laughs> and mm. so it was frustrating but then we really figured it out we kind of cracked the nut and the way that heroes became important and interesting and mattered was first you've got to make sure that their hit points are not the game winning objective like if i have to kill your hero to win the game then your hero can't really be that involved in combat. Like you always want to hold it back and you don't want to fight anything. <laughs> it's just led mm -hmm. to boring stuff. So we wanted heroes to be their own autonomous things that can get in there, get in the mix, <laughs> do some battle. Also tuned to be stronger than units at the beginning of the game. So that you're like, yeah, these heroes, they are exciting things. They're powerful. They have a bunch of abilities. They're interesting. And then to have spells come from the heroes, to have each hero have their own kit of spells that matches their theme, that really started to 
work, not just the flavor level, but the mechanics level as well. I'm sure you can relate to all that as a Warcraft 3 player, because it's just really fun to have a certain type of hero with a theme and a feeling and a personality and the spells and abilities that go along with them. Yeah, and then the thing about Codex design and, and where the heroes actually are is they're not actually inside your deck. Is they're, they're sitting face up on the table and you get to summon them from the command zone. So you don't even have to draw them. It's just a inherent part of your strategy that you're going to be using those and that they're going to be a huge part of your army and, and the direction that you take it. And I like that a lot about it. Yeah, well, I will tell you why that is. Do you know why, maybe? Can you guess? So why don't I mean, you draw heroes from your deck? It, it reminds me of like Altar of Storms and whatnot from Warcraft 3, but I'm sure there's like a more technical mechanical <laughs> reason behind it. it. Yeah, there is a definitely a mechanical reason. So I really like in other customizable card games the idea of a counterspell. And I think counterspells are interactive, meaning you want to do something and I can interact with you and stop you from doing that. So I liked games that had a lot of counterspells. So the thing is that counterspells are also bad logistically because there's a lot of like waiting. There's a lot of like, hey, I want to do something. Is it okay? And then you have to tell me if you want to counter or not. <laughs> so it can be very cumbersome to play if just everyone has tons of counterspells all the time. So what I wanted to do is figure out a way that we could capture the part that I liked about that, but not the logistics part. To kind of break it down, to say it a different way, if you're going to do something, if I have some way of stopping you, some way at all, that would be good. And if the way that I use to stop you is through combat, then that inherently creates a lot of interaction, which is a good thing. Like if I have to interact with you through combat, then you can maybe block my guys, you can have the right guys to block or put them in the right place or something like that. And now there's a whole bunch of gameplay going on. So in Codex, you can counter any spell in a way. You can pre-counter it, basically, by killing the hero that casts that spell. So Zane is the anarchy hero. He can cast anarchy spells. And if I don't want you to cast a certain anarchy spell, if that's really important, then I can kill your Zane, and then he will go back to your command zone. He'll uh, have to refresh, you know, do a little cool down there before you can get him back. And it gives me some breathing room to not have to deal with your anarchy spell every turn. And likewise, your tech buildings work the same way. You have a tech one building, you can make a tech two and a tech three. If you make a tech two fire building, that's going to make tech two fire units. It can produce those units. And if the big threat to me is a certain fire tech two unit, I can destroy your tech two fire building and kind of pre-counter you for being able to do it. To state it yet another way, whenever you want to play something, it's always a combo. <laughs> there's the thing that you want to do, and then there's the requirement you've got to meet. And if that combo involved drawing cards from your deck, like if you had to draw your Fire Tech 2 building and draw the Fire Tech 2 unit and always make that line up, it would be really frustrating to play. If you needed mm -hmm. to draw the Anarchy spell and draw the Anarchy hero to cast it, that's difficult to line up. So half of the combo, the heroes that cast the spells and the buildings that produce the units, half the combo is not part of the randomness of card draw. It's just out there on the table, off to the side, that you can summon or build those things at any time. So that's the rationale for that. Yeah, that makes sense. And it gives you like an asynchronous way to actually counter stuff without having to pass priority, as you said. Like, okay, I'm going to play this. Is that okay? Or I'm going to do this now. Is that okay? 
and you get a lot of the bog down from that. So asynchronous gameplay was, I know that was a big goal for the game for a very long time. And how do you set up your defenses? And that led to like the creation of the patrol zone and stuff. But it's cool that there are still like counterspell type effects. Just as you said, you know, you destroy the hero, destroy the tech building. So codex can be played asynchronously, meaning you can get through your entire turn without waiting for the opponent a whole bunch of times. But that's actually a coincidence to the thing that we just talked about. Because there was an earlier point in Codex's history when it was very not asynchronous, when you really did need to wait a hundred times in your turn for the opponent to say things were okay. And the tech building still worked that way. So they actually worked that way just because it leads to good and interesting dynamics. And then the wonderful coincidence we had is that decided to make the game asynchronous, that part of the game was already lined up and working well. Mm-hmm. We did have a few counter spells actually. And we just removed them and it was still fine. It was still fine because everybody kind of can counter things anyway through combat. I think like the last analogy, I guess we just talked about tech buildings a bunch, but those kind of remind me of RTSs in a lot of ways. More so even than just the idea that if you want to stop me from building a tech one unit, you can destroy my tech building. One really cool thing about Codex is that At the start of the game, you have a bunch of really simple options in your hand. You have that 10-card starting deck. And the things you can use at the beginning are cheaper in gold. They're much simpler cards, have simple effects. And from the start of the game, you're constantly upgrading what's possible by teching cards out of your codex to your discard pile. So once you get to that tech 1 point, then all of a sudden the units become much better at tech 1 than the cards that you have in your starting set. And then when you get to tech 2, they become even more powerful and they cost more and more gold. And the thing that I really like is that you're going to see those cards much later in gameplay rather than possibly grabbing like a nine mana dude in your starting hand in another card game that you know is going to be a dead card for a very long portion of the game. Just like in StarCraft, you have like Marines and Medics at the beginning and you upgrade to Siege Tanks and eventually to Battlecruisers. You kind of have that same dynamic in Codex where you're playing early game things in the early game, mid game things in the mid game, and then you have these big late game Tech 3 units that are amazing. Right. Uh, Well, that would still be true in in any CCG just from the mana costs, though, right? I guess the difference, though, is that what's in your hand? Your hand at the beginning of the game doesn't have a bunch of non-choices in it, right? Is that, that's, I think the point you're getting. Like if you, if you started the game with a nine cost guy in your hand that you can't choose to play, that's not really a decision. And we went the other way there and said, you start the game with a handful of cards that you can all use. And it's not even just that. On top of that, you can use any of them as a worker. So you've got to figure out, well, which one should I play? Which one should I use as a worker? It kind of depends on the matchup. It depends on what strategy you want to go for. Depends on a lot of things. Yeah, and you also start with enough gold to play a lot of things at once. You're not starting at a one mana threshold. You have a minimum, because the way the game works is if you're player one, you start with four workers already in your worker pile, which means that your turn starts, you get four gold. For player two, it's five gold, and that's just a uh, player one versus player two thing. But ultimately... The starting deck cards, five five workers, workers, correct. Yeah. Yeah. Ultimately, the starting deck cards, though, range from like zero to three gold. I think there might be, is there a four gold guy? Maybe not. I forget. I don't think so. I don't think so. I think three is considered like super expensive for like a starting deck guy. You know, you only have about four gold. But the idea is that you could play a bunch of the cards out of your hand on the beginning of the game. And then at that moment, you're going to discard everything, draw a brand new hand of cards and still be able to play a bunch of stuff. So you don't have dead draws kind of ever in Codex. You always have like a, a lot of options. And Yeah, you have all those options of cards in your hand. You also have heroes that are in your command zone. Correct, yeah. All, all heroes cost two to summon. They come in at level one and then you can pay more gold to level them up. So that's even more options there. Like 
no matter what's in your hand, you could get a hero instead. Yeah, you have so much flexibility, as long as you have the gold to spend. You could play nothing from your hand and just go all in on this hero. Like, I'm going to summon him, I'm going to pay a bunch more gold to level him up, or the other way, you know, not use a hero at all this turn. So, yeah, there's a, a lot of choices. And that reminds me of our earlier episode when we talked about actual StarCraft, how in the really old days, like in Warcraft, where you start with one worker and no base, you got to build your base. Yeah. <laughs> and then you know time goes on you kept starting with more like okay fine start with four workers in a base maybe six workers and now in the latest starcraft 2 it's 12 yeah and it's, it's because they're trying to get rid of boring early game states and that's exactly what i wanted to do in puzzle strike your starting deck of 10 cards there in dominion you have three cards that don't really do anything and I wanted to have three cards that did as much as possible to replace those. So here in Codex, it's all the same theme, it's the same idea, right? We're trying to say, let's give you a fast start. Let's get you way into the game on turn one. Instead of being like, okay, I've got one gold, I'll play nothing, or the only guy that costs one, go, your turn. Like, let's just skip three or four turns of that. <laughs> yeah, indeed. So, I mean, that's kind of all the... Maybe not all, but that's a lot of the RTS elements that are kind of being translated to this card game. Yes. You may wonder, why is this even an RTS game at all? <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Can you guess? I don't know. I'm not sure how obvious it is or not. I, I guess it's just the idea that you play the same thing a lot. Like you want to just play Terran in StarCraft. So you practice that a bunch and you want to learn all the matchups. Terran versus Zerg, Terran versus Protoss and see which units you use and all that. And I guess Codex is kind of like, you know, what if we translated that to a card game? You know, could I have the 60 card deck full of stuff or should I have mm -hmm. a 10 card deck that I could then branch off and play siege tanks if I want to, but maybe siege tanks aren't good against these guys. So I'm going to go rates, you know, that's. Yeah, you're on the right track there. I think this is worth pointing out the real full answer though, because I know there's okay. some people out there who are thinking, oh, I don't care about RTS games. Like if anything, that's a negative because maybe there's a bunch of weird stuff that's in the game that just matches how these video games work for the sake of it but it's like not actually a good idea. Like it's hurting the game maybe. And then it's shackled by this RTS theme or something. Someone might okay. think that. So to address that concern, I will reveal to you that Codex was not RTS themed from the beginning. It was actually originally kind of like MMO themed. Like you're a character class. Like black was like you're a warlock. Red was you're a fire mage. And the idea was mastering your character class as opposed to you know mastering your race of zerg or something and i was really into that you can kind of see a little hint of that with like different kinds of spells different schools of magic and that sort of thing and as we developed the game more, we just talked about a minute ago, this idea of being able to pre-counter people. Like if they're going to cast a certain kind of spell, there's something on the table you can attack to stop them from doing that. If they're going to make certain kinds of units or creatures or whatever, there's something you can do about that. So even then, I knew that was important and I wanted that. Okay, so if you know that you want that, then like how do you incorporate that into like an MMO theme? It's not immediately obvious how you would do that. And so I was kind of trying to do that. And then I went to, I used to go to the series of design meetings. I guess we haven't had them in forever, but they were held by Jonathan Blow, who released the oh, wow. game The Witness recently. And uh, he actually 
showed the witness many years ago at this sort of thing. So at this meeting, the point of it was that people could show either what they're working on. It could be they could be way into it or they could be just kind of the kernel of an idea or something. And they would get the opinions from a bunch of game designers. And one guy at this meeting, not Jonathan Blow, someone else showed us a prototype of an idea in a video game. And he said, here's how it works. Here's the mechanic. It's not a game yet. It's just like very early. And I want it to be like this kind of medieval thing with castles and soldiers in the castle. You're kind of moving the soldiers around to do certain tasks. And so we all looked at it and we had ideas about what to do, about the potential we saw in his mechanic. Some people said, oh, you could use that mechanic to do this sort of thing. Other people said, you go, you could use it to do this other sort of thing. And then when there were a few ideas on the table, we got to the next level of discussion. Okay, where should he take this mechanic? What's the best way to use it? And as it was discussed more and more, the whole room kind of, including me, started to build a consensus that really the best use of this mechanic was whatever, some certain thing. The detail isn't important. We were all zeroing in on it being a certain thing. And the thing that we zeroed in on did not fit at all with his idea of it being a medieval castle. And he was like, yeah, but, but I want to make a castle game. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. And then Jonathan Blow spoke up and said, it's kind of the, the old wise man or something. And he said, well, when faced with a situation like this, when the mechanics are going one way and the theme is going another, you should change the theme. Because what we're doing here at the core is we're making interactive experiences. And the mechanics really need to come first. You need to make the best actual game you can make. So make the theme that supports it. And I was like, damn it, I'm upset about this because A, I know he's right. And B, he's basically talking to me, but he just doesn't realize it because he doesn't even know mm -hmm. that I'm working on this other thing. And so like basically that day I went home and was like, all right, this codex needs to be RTS themed. Everything is lining up with it being RTS. So I changed very little. It all kind of fell into place. Yeah, like for adding reason, buildings and adding For the reasons you said, things, yeah, yeah, right. It just sort of fit. And then what's funny is that, you know, I mentioned originally here that the concern someone might have is that we matched RTS in a way that might make the game worse or something. So first of all, we didn't do that. It was its own way, how it needed to be. But then here and there, there's a chance to tweak a little detail in order to match the theme. And that was definitely for the best. <laughs> Here's just one example. I said that heroes should be important. Heroes should be stronger than your original units that you start out with, these weak units. Well, why not just play all your heroes? Why not, at the beginning of the game, every single time you play, make all three of your heroes that are in your command zone and bring them in? So there's got to be some reason you don't do that, but the reason can't be that they're all weak and crappy. Mm -hmm. And Warcraft 3 had a great answer to that. It's that, well, you're just not allowed to bring in more than one hero at the beginning of the game. you got to pick one and then kind of stick with it a little bit. Then when you build your Tech 2 building, you can bring in a second hero. And that's exactly the same rule in Codex. It's like they had already encountered the same problem for the same reasons. Mm -hmm. And they had a solution. So I used the same solution as Warcraft 3. <laughs> it's good mechanically, but it's also funny because it helps match the theme even a little bit more. Yeah, totally. Photix, tell us why this game is good. <laughs> the thing that makes the game interesting to me is, you know, I'm a very competitive, pretty hardcore gamer in general, and the game has just a real large depth of strategy. 
that's really what's the most interesting thing to me. And so why is that? I mean, is it it's the whole the whole build order thing? That- well, I think it's a lot of things. I mean, we kind of touched on a lot of what makes it interesting. I mean, you're starting with so many valid options that already, even from the first turn of the game, you have a lot of real decisions with real consequences, which is very different from most card games. Where, like you touched on, you might not even have a card that costs one gold, you know, or whatever, you know, resource might be in that game. But in this game, you have five live cards, and then you also have buildings you can make, and then you also have different heroes you could summon. And then on top of that, right from the first turn, you're going to be building your deck. So there's never a turn where you're not making a lot of difficult choices with a lot of valid options in them. Yeah, I feel that. And after seeing this game change and evolve over the course of years i still have a hard time playing it like i should know better by now but over and over what happens is like after playing a game i think back and go well did i make any mistakes yeah i I did i can identify you know here i should have not done this and there i should have done that so the next time i play i'll make sure to remember that won't make those mistakes so then i play again and i feel like i just make different mistakes there's just so many i don't know i guess what i'm saying is that it feels like an unusually high skill ceiling to me And I can't even explain exactly why that is, but it's something to do with the breadth of options, that there's so many choices that it's hard to evaluate and really find the right ones. There's so many situations. Well, well, I think I could elaborate on that a tiny bit, at least. There's some things that we could call outright mistakes, like errors that, like uncontested errors. For example, maybe you just put a card in your deck from your codex that costs 10 gold and you're not going to possibly have 10 gold on the turn you draw it. And you can know that and you just screwed up because you weren't thinking. Or, you know, you could extrapolate that to a bunch of different things. But just something that you messed up, right? That happens quite a bit on its own. And then on top of that, there's a ton of double blind going on and a lot of direct interaction where you might be making poor choices that are not just objectively wrong, but are wrong for the situation, or you're not responding enough to what your opponent's doing. So there's like different levels of mistakes, and there's different skills used to avoid all of those mistakes. And it takes a lot of knowledge and experience and just thinking to play this game effectively and to win consistently. It's just a real mental workout, but I enjoy that personally. Yeah, like to touch on that too, you said a lot about you and the mistakes that you're making and the decisions that you made, right? It's not that you have a deck that just poorly is constructed to not necessarily deal with what your opponent has and you're just kind of, you know, playing poorly because you have to make bad decisions, but you're forced to. It's that you're making tech decisions that are trying to counterplay what your opponent has. And because each of you is using a complete toolkit that has like really powerful checks and balances and counters with whatever else they could go up against, you're starting at that even play field point. So you know that it's just your own mistakes that come into it. And to me, like that's my favorite part about playing competitive games is if I can look at a game and lose and try to pinpoint all the ways that I messed up and not ways that, you know, oh yeah, card draw screwed me or I drew too many lands or, you know, anything like that. Like those are not interesting to me. If I had a crossroads and I made the wrong decision, can I correct that? Will I even detect that I made that decision incorrectly? Did I think it was the right thing to do and did it anyway and I was still wrong? Like, <laughs> It's all internal. It has nothing to do with the, the mechanics of the cards themselves or the relative power of the deck that I'm using. It's just me, and I like that the most about it. And just one more very minor thing that you mentioned there. 
about the randomness. I've played many, many card games competitively. It's probably my favorite type of game, period. And Codex hits a real sweet spot for me where there's a real amount of randomness such that you can't just run on a script, you know, like a flowchart and do the same thing all the time and not have to think much. But there's also not so much randomness where you auto-lose or auto-win games. It's in a really narrow width of variance that creates a lot more depth of strategy without creating inconsistencies in who wins. Like, you know, robbing the more skilled player of winning. Yeah, I definitely know what you mean. Let me elaborate on that. So the randomness is this, like, hot topic people get really upset about. Like, if there's any randomness in my game, it's bad or something. But really, you should look at it as... A game can have a lot of skill or a little skill needed. And then separate from that, it can have a lot of randomness or not a lot of randomness. As a kind of simple toy example, chess has a lot of skill. And then a fictitious game where you play chess and then at the end of the game, you like roll a six-sided die. And if you get a two, then you win or something. That's pretty random, but it also has all the skill of chess because the times you didn't roll the two, the chess game result is what determines who wins <laughs> you know what i'm saying so right, yeah there's still all the same skill it's just now you made it less important okay so how does that apply t- to us here well i think there's some kinds of randomness that you can add to a game that will increase and enhance the skills needed and then other kinds of randomness that can do the opposite that can make the game more shallow and stupid that's exactly what a photix is talking about right there So the good kind is like in Guilty Gear, Faust has random items, and that means you've got to improvise. When you play Faust, you throw a bunch of items, and they're all good in different ways, but you can't memorize a pattern. You just kind of have to go with what you get and make the most of it. So it creates a lot of situations that would never exist in another version of the game where Faust was non-random. It's actually more skill testing. So it's one of the best examples of randomness I know of in a fighting game. The opposite, like the worst you could do, I think, is to have resources be random in such a way where you just lose the game because you don't have enough resources to do anything. Like that's not adding any skill. Or if you only draw resources. Yeah, if you only draw resources, you don't draw any. So it's really hard for me to go play another card game that has random resources after I've played the non-random way. I'm also curious what you think, Photix, about in Codex, so we don't have the random resources. We do have some randomness because you're drawing cards, but it's way less randomness than most card games. And so our audience can understand, well, what do we mean by that? In a normal customizable card game, you've got a 60-card deck. So let's say there's a particular card you want. I don't know, one copy of something that you want. So what's the chance you could be able to play that on turn three or four? Well, it's pretty low. I mean, I actually used to know the math of this, but it's like definitely under 50%, like just to be vague. Isn't it way under? So you start with seven. Considerably, yeah, it's considerably under. Uh, Sure. I mean, just, just think we won't try to compute it on the fly, but just... Use some intuition, think about having 60 cards, drawing seven of them, and then drawing one a turn for three or four turns and trying to get to a particular card in that 60. You're not going to get to it. And so I'm not even saying you should get to it. I'm not even trying to make a value judgment right now. Just saying that's how it is, is that you don't normally have strong guaranteed access to (laughs) to certain cards in your deck, but Codex went the other way and you really do. You can name any card in your Codex and you will get it by turn four if you want it right guaranteed yeah i think well isn't it roughly like 50 percent chance you get it by turn three and 50 right. by turn four right. it's unless you did something weird but yeah 
Oh, yeah, yeah, unless you did, unless you did something weird. I, I, yeah, sir. I, I kind of mean just if you play it straight, you do the normal things. It's generally about a 50-50 where you get a card three or four. That is radically different. And what do you think about that? Like in some way it could be bad because maybe there's not enough randomness, but it's also empowering. You can really choose your build. Like you can seriously say, I'm going to go, I'm going to do this certain sequence and you know, you can get cards in generally the right sequence. Well, I would really compare it to StarCraft or StarCraft 2, you know, since that's just the yeah. open game these days. If you look at professional StarCraft 2 games, which admittedly I haven't done since probably before the expansions came out, but even when I used to watch it, there's, you know, maybe two or three or four build orders in any given matchup that are kind of your go-tos. There might be a more aggressive option, a more economical option, and perhaps a more defensive option, you know, if they do something aggressive, right? And you're going to have, like, a solid starting point in StarCraft Two. StarCraft Two is a non-random game. You know, you mine your minerals at the rate, you know, at a consistent rate, and then you build your buildings non-randomly. So there's a little bit of difference between that and Codex, but it's still a very similar idea where it means that you're going to have a foundation of strategy, like a foundation of, okay, in general playing against whatever opponent I'm playing against. I have an idea of how I want to start this game. And then the randomness just means that the individual scenarios that come up are more varied than usual. So I'd almost view it more in the mindset of the game is at its core not really random, but then you get a wider variety of specific decisions on each turn due to the small amount of variance in the game. Versus something like you know, I'm trying to think of a game that's really random that is actually worth playing. I can't really think of any right now, but <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure. Mario Party. <laughs> hey, Mario Party is actually Mario Party. They, I don't. Have you played the new Mario Party? They really kind of ruined it. But that's that's no, way I off haven't. topic. Mario Party it's 10, sad. Uh... Yeah, it's really sad actually. Maybe we'll talk about that some other time. But okay. sure, let's go with an old Mario Party, right? Where it's more like what happens is mostly determined by randomness, and then occasionally you get a choice. You know, it's very much the opposite of that, where like almost everything is decided by skill, and then randomness is really not there to hamper your ability to win. It just kind of increases decisions occasionally. Support for this podcast comes from patrons like you at patreon.com slash Serlin. You can become a patron and support the development of more finely tuned Serlin games, as well as more content on this podcast. And if you do, you get access to a sneak peek at art that's in development and playtest materials for upcoming games. You also get access to a special second podcast where you can hear behind the scenes of how we actually solve design problems. That's patreon.com slash Serlin. I'm thinking back to a little bit earlier in our discussion when we're sort of struggling to explain like why is it that you can play this game over and over and still be bad at it? <laughs> and I'm kind of thinking about a couple little anecdotes here. One is the playtester named Kevin, who I called the Terror of Codex, who is just super good at the game. And in looking at the game through his eyes, trying to understand like how is he being so successful? What is he doing? All of his stories, like the way he looks at the game has to do with viewing things along different resource axes. On the one hand, if I play a certain way, will it maximize my gold? Also, will it get me ahead in gold? Like it's not just maximizing it, it's absolute value. It's will I have more gold than the opponent? 
And then also, will I be ahead on cards? Will I make them waste cards and they're, you know, they won't get to draw as many per turn as me or something? And then the third component is the board. Is my presence on the board so powerful that I can just overwhelm them and beat their heroes and beat their tech buildings and cripple them or not? And so along these three dimensions, he's always thinking about how will this play affect all these meters? And that's really complicated. <laughs> yeah. I mean, just right. think about trying to really solve that because especially the board one, I mean, there's so many factors there in what constitutes being ahead on the board. So anyway, but I, he looked through this lens and you can already start to see how you could play over and over and still really struggle with that because there's just so many variables. But then other players who also did well. I mean, yes, they acknowledge that those are important concepts, but they have other things on their minds as their primary thing. So there are some players that were really all about, maybe Leontis, you're one of them. I'm not sure. Like all about the slim deck, all about like, can I, oh, yeah. can I reduce my deck and the number of cards on my deck so much that it starts to be just so consistent and all I'm doing is playing the most powerful stuff. Because if that's the lens you're looking through, then you might make way different decisions than Kevin was making. Like that you've got a unit on the board. You can choose whether it's going to live or die based on what other cards you play. But you really want it to live even more than he does, I think, mm -hmm. because you want it out of your deck. <laughs> You know, because you have this whole other thing you're trying to maximize, getting cards out of your deck. Yeah, for, uh, for me, it was always about tech speed and efficiency in terms of if I tech this thing, which to tech is to take two cards out of your codex at the end of the turn and put it in your discard pile, how soon will I get that? And how actively can I draft the counters to what my opponent is doing? And in Codex, like one of the best ways to do that is to not only control the board, but it means that you're not having your units die a lot. Like dead units go to the discard pile. And because this is kind of a deck builder, the way that it works is when you have to draw cards out of your deck, if you can't, you shuffle your discard pile, that becomes your deck, and then you start to draw into your tech options that you put in later. So one thing I, I learned really quickly was that I like to play really, really tough things that protect everything on the board. And I want to keep like a, a massive board and have like nine cards out, which like thins my deck like crazy. And then I know that whatever I put in my discard pile, I'm going to see it within like two turns. And that was a lot of the way that I started to learn efficient strategies in the game. But that's a much more passive, much more uh, economic approach to it. I'm like, you know, fast expanding and like, you know, turtling up in an RTS as opposed to somebody who is just trying to eke out advantages in other ways like Kevin would. Yeah. And I'll give you even another lens to look at things through, which is the one that as a player, I personally used a lot. And it was all about, see, in Magic, they would call it a sly deck or red deck wins. The theory that 20 hit points is just not a lot of life. It's like I'm on a mission to prove that uh, maybe that 20 should have been higher. <laughs> You know, yeah. if I just go like super aggressive, can I break the game? You know, can I just make it look incredible? And when you go that way, there's a lot of trade-offs that become crazy. Like it doesn't matter if you have any guys in the board anymore. So imagine that my goal is that I have nothing. Everything's dead. Everything's destroyed. I'm in ruins, but I barely won. You know, it's I just barely, I barely won the race. That's what I'm going for. Because if that's possible, then right beforehand, why would I spend resources defending my guys? It wouldn't be necessary <laughs> in that case. Okay, here's another way of a kind of phrasing this lens or this way of looking at it. There's a certain amount of damage that you kind of can't avoid taking. Like there's actions I can take 
that are going to deal damage to your hit points no matter what. Now, it's not 20 damage, but it's a few. So if I play a certain way, I can like, it's kind of like you have 15 hit points, really, because there's just no way you're going to avoid, you know, these five. And so I start to think about it all about life point math about, okay, really you, you had in my mind, you've got 15 hit points or you've got, you know, 13 hit points or something, even though the total on the board doesn't actually say that, but in my head it does. Cause I know it basically adds up to that. And then how am I going to sneak in the rest? Like what kind of suicide scenario can I do? And I really do need to play like some defense early on. And the question is all about at what point do I reach the tipping point where I can just go all in on your life total and not have to care about my defense anymore. I've done the same strategy in other CCGs as well and in Codex. And I don't know if it's like a fundamental truth or something, but what I find in multiple games is that the inflection point, as you get better and better at the game, it comes a little sooner than you think, which catches people off guard. And I've, I've had, I've played against like mm. a particular really good player. And after I did like an all in on him, he had 14 life. And then I just completely stopped caring about all of his units and was only damaging his base. But I mean, I, I'm not winning. I'm not dealing 14 right then, but I'm, I'm like, you know, dealing four or something. And he, he was so confused. He's like, what, really? <laughs> like, you think it's time for that? And then I won by one damage. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so the point of this whole story is that that lens is like completely crazy and different and on the other side of the world from whatever you're doing. <laughs> and, then, and then Kevin is off in his own valuation land. And that's only three examples. There's people didn't are Kevin have, play black. Yeah, well, Kevin, he had a, like a really specific type of thing he was trying to maximize, which was just a way to get barely ahead in combat really early. Mm -hmm. He valued, he'd value that super highly. And so he played black and he basically, he just kind of hopped between colors, like until he would get nerfed, whatever he was doing. <laughs> so he, so he played black and then we had to make black like a little worse, even though it's still amazing. And then he would jump to white and he stuck with white for quite a while. I see. Because I just, I just wonder if this is just different philosophies of factions. Like you want to talk about how different the factions are. I primarily play green. Um, I know that you primarily played red. And so if that's your lens is, you know, how soon can I pressure my opponent and just go suicide all in, then red's kind of succeeding in its design goal, right? Whereas for, for green, <laughs> right. I'm trying to like, you know, turtle up and build up to really, really big dinosaurs and tigers and stuff. And then I just demolish you in one combat. That's kind of what green does, you know? Yeah, that's so right. It, it, it yeah, you can attack that, for 20 with green. That's totally reasonable, right? I, I do it, that all the time. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, your base has been chill the entire game at 20 health. Well, guess what? Now you're dead. And <laughs> and maybe maybe it's just that playing green a lot has warped my playstyle to become that. And maybe playing red a lot. Well, actually, for you, you say it's the other way around. It's that that is your strat, and red is the toolbox that allows you to accomplish that. Yeah. Well, I'm also the designer. I'm the designer, so I made sure that red was able to do that. <laughs> yes. Yes. Sir. I didn't mention before when you guys it was more on topic, but you were talking about how uh, briefly one of you touched on the fact that it's just cool to have heroes in this game or in any game because you know it brings personality into the game and allows people to relate to that and codex has a really fun thing going on where some people are going to identify mechanically with a deck or with a color or with a faction or, or even an individual hero 
And then others are going to identify to the flavor and the, you know, either the art or just the con- the high concept, a hero or a faction. And I think in a lot of cases for everyone that I really play with, they end up falling in love with various things for a mix of both reasons. And it's actually a lot more compelling than in most other games. Like, it's really unique to Codex, I think, where... I really love black, right? It's actually really rare for me to play anything other than black. And if I think about why, you know, if I elaborated on why it is that I want to play black, I think about the fact that first off, like all the demons in the demon faction. Spec. Yeah. Spec, sure. It's just really cool. And they're really, I think, one of the most interesting, both visually and conceptually. And then as a player, like the disease tree, which is pretty much about just killing all of your opponent's stuff forever, like mechanically as a player is just so enjoyable to me. Like the mix of those two things, like the mix of those two things is something I don't think you get too much. I think usually you're, you're more forced to compromise in a game because you just have less options given to you not even compared to ccgs because you know in most customizable games your deck is usually a disaster on the flavor side because it's just whatever does the (laughs) thing you're trying to do the best really and it doesn't matter what the flavor is like there's really no way to design great flavor into a a traditional customizable game because eventually you're going to end up with an optimized list that is all over the place in terms of flavor but Uh, You know, on the flip side, you know, in terms of maybe a fighting game or or something like that, you don't get to say, oh, I really like the mechanics of this Rushdown character, but also I love the aesthetic and the whole high concept of this other defensive character, and I I get to play with both of them in every game. You know, you have to just compromise on what you want to go with, you know, in that case. But in Codex, due to the fact that you get some element of customizability and allows you to pick the things that you find really cool for flavor reasons and the things that you find cool for mechanical reasons and play with it all at once, which I think is pretty unique. Now, let me elaborate on uh, on that for the black faction in particular. So each faction has three specs, three heroes, and blacks are demonology, disease, and necromancy. And the high concept there is that in the demonology tree, you're getting demons that are very powerful, like above the normal curve, but they've all got some sort of drawback. It's always like you're making a deal with the dark side in order to get these guys and they're just ready to backstab you and screw you over. So that's the theme there. Then as Photic said, with disease, it's just about everything dying. <laughs> you get to put minus one, minus one runes on things and then they spread to other things and things just get weaker and weaker and die. So it's harder to keep units on the board against disease. Actually on both sides, like even the disease player loses some units along the way, uh, sacrifice the weak and so on. So the necromancy tree is actually kind of the opposite of the first one of the demonology tree. The idea there is that you have a whole bunch of weak skeletons you're summoning skeletons all the time and then they can they can get buffs and other abilities if you get a bunch of them you can sacrifice them to do another powerful thing or something but in general you it's just about having a lot of guys and it's not just the flavor i mean that's that is a cool flavor and everybody loved that in diablo 2 <laughs> the necromancer in that so sir, so i mean the part part of the reason is because that's just fun flavor but it's also specifically because it's opposite mechanics of the demonology tree. That means when the, an opponent faces you, the kinds of cards that are good against one of those are not good against the other. For example, if you had a card that just straight up destroyed one single thing, that card it might be like a little bit expensive, 
but really worth it if it destroyed an awesome thing. But then that's crap when you're fighting a bunch of skeletons. You don't want to pay kind of a lot to kill one skeleton. (laughs) You want some totally other type of answer to that. So that means that mono black player, player that's using all three of these specs, all three of these heroes, it has that resilience. It has like, oh, I've got a plan that makes you counter me one way and another plan that makes you counter me another way. And then the other thing I wanted to say about the, the customizable aspect of this is that if we go way back into the history of this game, before it had specs, I would design the decks for us to play, and I was designing them as a game designer as opposed to as a player. Like, let's just test this system out, and I made a bunch of cards that will be fun, so we'll play it. So we play it, and we had fun, we revise it, and so on. And then I would think to myself in the back of my head, you know, what am I doing here? When I'm designing these decks, what is my plan and what i was doing was i was making sure that we always had three different routes to go it's really kind of like nine different routes to go if you want to zoom in a little more because yeah there's three different specs so it's in that sense it's three but when you actually play the game you can make a hero and then you can make tech buildings and they don't have to match so for example i could make the demonology hero and cast demonology spells but i don't have to make the demonology tech two building if I wanted, I could make the disease tech two building. It's kind of like three times three possibilities of build orders. But anyway, the point is that I thought of it as like kind of three rows of my codex of my book. And then in the back of my mind, I thought, you know, this is really going to suck someday when we ship this game and nobody plays it this way. If I let you customize it any way you want, it's totally believable that it would be like a bad playing to win idea to build a deck like we've been testing. Like maybe you'd be better off at winning tournaments if instead of having three plans, you had one plan that you totally maximized. If you just had every card in your deck all about this one plan or something, Mm -hmm. maybe that would be better. Even if it wasn't, even if that's wrong, some people are going to think that. It's just going to end up so much more one-dimensional than this fun thing that we're playing now. And so we adopted this mantra of force the player to have fun. (laughs) The idea was how can we make the rules force you to have the fun that we are having right now? So the answer to that was to introduce this concept of these specs and to make sure that just as part of the game built into it is you've always got these three plans so that you have to be resilient. You have to play like basically a whole faction in Starcraft or something as opposed to just like a deck that's Zerglings, more Zerglings, Super Zerglings. I mean, I think we've <laughs> talked about it before on this podcast, perhaps maybe a while ago, but it's like a known fact that the more customizability you add, the more narrow things are going to be. Like, it actually takes away options, and, and right. that's generally less interesting. That might be surprising for people to hear, because it sounds like, oh, the more customizable it is, the more I want it, the more fun it is, because I have all these possibilities. That's true for low skill level. And then you learn that, oh, actually, these two decks are unbeatable or whatever. That's the whole problem, right? Right. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So we've gone the other way. And this point, this is like a super important point. And it might be hard for us to truly communicate this and for people to really hear what we're saying and not think it's just some marketing garbage or something. Because if if we're making just any random card game and you put 60 cards in the deck or something, you could compute like how many possible ways can you build a 60 card deck out of the pool and it's like 100 quadrillion ways or something. And so we could say, we've got 100 quadrillion decks and it would just be a stupid thing you ignore that means nothing. 
So I don't want people to, th to feel that way about this thing that we're saying here. That would be the stupid fact because the relevant fact there wouldn't be how many decks can you build. It would be how many decks are actually viable to play, like reasonable to play. Most of the, literally most of the decks you would make in that just pick any 60 card deck world would not even be playable. Like, I mean, uh, they'd be like all resources and no guys or something would be in there. <laughs> <laughs> or even, I think we could actually take it a step further than that, though, and not just say, like, reasonable, but would anyone even want to play it, even if it was reasonable, you know? I don't even think it would be fun to play most combinations, right? Like, no one sure, would ever sure. even attempt to do that. Yeah, so, it would, I mean, and then it would be fun. There's a lot of them that it would be fun. But what we're trying to get at is, like, what's the important measure? And the measure that I personally use in my head is from Street Fighter, from Super Turbo Street Fighter. I always think of ST Kami. Kami is not that great. She's one of the lower tier characters, but she can absolutely win. She can touch of doom you and kill you. She's got a good low medium kick, good standing medium kick, got an awesome dragon punch. Yeah, she's got a lot of things going for her. She is reasonable. She's a lot more reasonable than like, I don't know, 99% of decks you could make if you literally randomly threw customizable cards together. That shouldn't be a point of contention. It's just <laughs> you, you don't really get something valuable when you throw random cards together. So the question would be, how many decks at ST Kami level or higher would you get? If you did the normal kind of customizability and not very many is, is the normal answer. Like how many decks are reasonable to play in a standard environment? Like six, eight? I, I'm being uh, generous I played, there. I, I, the first number I was going to say is the first number I was going to say is six. So somewhere. Okay. Around. But so like, what if I said 20? I mean, that's, that's like, come uh, on. That's good. No. Yeah. I'm worried that people are going to think we're trash talking or being overly critical, but I'm just sort of trying to get to the fact of the matter. Like how many decks would be viable to play if we hadn't full customizability, like the normal way of doing things. And I think if we said 20, that would be unreasonable. It wouldn't be supported by the facts, by the empirical world we live in. 20 would be too many. But how many do we actually have? And this is the very important point where it sounds like marketing speak, but it's not. It's actually real. How many do we have? Well, the answer is any combination of these 20 specs, 20 choose three, which is over 1,000. There's over 1,000 decks you can play. All 1,000 differ by each other deck in that list by at least one third of the cards or more. It's actually is you can multiply that by even more because you can have different starting deck and that explodes it yeah, even more. The, the, the number thousands. ends up somewhere around like 3,000 something. But you're right, though. Like it's, it's around 1,000 plus of decks that are legitimately different from one another from turn three onwards. Yeah. So it's many thousands if you want to be technical about it with the different starting decks. But it's over a thousand just with the different hero combinations alone. It's, it's over a thousand if you still want to say they all differ by a third. So someone might push back and say, OK, well, yeah, you could make over a thousand decks, but how many of those are worthwhile? Like, aren't most of them garbage? Just like you were saying about a random CCG thing, like aren't 99% of them garbage? So the answer is no, they're not garbage. And we do know that because we have 20 discrete chunks and which chunk is unplayably bad? Well, none of them. I mean, we've been playing this thing for years. We know that there's no, 
There's no right, right. one of these 20 specs that's just like useless garbage. They each have a plan. They each have synergies within them. They're each like at least ST Kemi, and then they've got like a good medium kick. They've got a dragon punch. They've got the <laughs> yeah. basic tools they need to use. They're not yeah, just totally. like all lands or something. Well, perhaps they should explain how it is that we're able to create that. And I think the real difference here between a fully customizable game and this sort of customization of different like chunks of cards or sets of cards, the real difference there is that you can do way more accurate balance testing when you're prescribed a set of cards at once rather than having to test so many different combinations. Like there's just no, sure. like hunting that you have to do as a tester to figure out what's too good. Or what's too weak. Yeah, you're coming at it from different angles there. Your angle is like if you kind of graph the power level of every possible deck, you're looking for the peaks. Where's the absolute highest peak? And how do we make sure that it doesn't rise way above everything else? So the answer is that is a very difficult thing to do. We might have messed up, you know, we don't know. But we set ourselves up to succeed, at least. <laughs> we mm -hmm. chose a system where it's feasible because of what you just said. There's only discrete chunks we needed to deal with and not 100 billion insane decks we can't ever predict. I was coming out from the other angle. So you've got 100 decks and if someone wants to say, well, that or sorry, a thousand plus decks. And someone wants to say, no, that's a stupid stat, then in order for them to make that argument, they'd have to point out all of the decks that are garbage. So which of them are garbage? You kind of can't make one. <laughs> yeah. If you have three chunks that each do with like the worst deck you could make would be three chunks that were all full powered that just didn't have synergy with each other. Right. So the whole power scale here goes from no synergy to lots of synergy. But that is a very narrow band of power compared to what you would normally be dealing with. It's a band that's analogous, I think, to the difference between ST Kami and the top character in ST. All reasonable to play. All can win a tournament. Yeah. To kind of go more so with what Ifotix was saying about like how to actually balance the text individually as well. It's good that we've constrained deck building in this way, where you have the, you know, the entire tech line is a chunk of cards that ranges from the spells that the hero casts, the tech one units in that tree, the tech two units, and then the tech three unit. So looking at this from the way that the game is actually constructed, where there's there's no booster packs, there's no rarities, none of that stuff. There's no there's no commons and, and legendary cards or anything like that you kind of have this spectrum of powerful cards that are lined up together and you're forced to take them as a chunk whereas in other games if you can mix and match literally anything that you want you can have a deck full of super rare powerful things and it's talking about playtesting that stuff it becomes very difficult because you can never truly know what someone will do but because of the fact that we have this constrained path to deck building you know, we know if a player text will go with demonology tech two, we can kind of look at that and say, okay, well, these are the things that they have to use when they do that. Is demonology too strong? Is it too weak? You know, where, where are the matchups kind of lying there? And when you have no control over what a player can do, it, it can get really, really tough to balance it that way. Yeah. I was thinking we could move on to talk about the business model. It's sort of related to that. How are we packaging this? And a lot of it has to do with just making sure that it's an even playfield game, that you can't really have powerful rares against someone that doesn't. Like everybody has the same power level yeah, yeah. of stuff. I mean, this is a touchy subject. People get really upset about it. <laughs> so you guys should help explain this. We're not trying to make anyone mad or talk down to anyone. We just sort of want to point out how it is and why we did it this way, how it compares to other games. Part of it has to do with who are we talking about as a player, what type of player? So there's one type of player that's like, I care about 
tournament play, like how much would it cost to get all the tournament decks? <laughs> That's what I want. That's usually very expensive. That's one end of the spectrum. Another end is I'm just super casual. Like just give me a pre-con, just give me the cheapest thing. So why don't we talk about both of those? Before we quite get to that, I mean, we should point out that, of course, the most important thing when determining how we're going to create a business model is ensuring an even playing field. Mm-hmm. Really, that kind of disqualifies us from copying the business model of most CCGs. Like, they really don't tend to promote even playing field with their business model. And since that to us is like a non starting point, we had to think outside the box a little bit more. Right. So the only thing you can play is a deck that is full powered as opposed to like, oh, I didn't buy enough booster packs or something to get a, a rare. I mean, that's what, that's what you're getting at there, right? Right. I mean, just the idea that when even figuring out what to do, we had to kind of start in less explored territory. <laughs> Wait, hold on. You, you've also just reminded me that whenever I talk to business people, they're, they're like, they ask me, am I just bent on making no money? Is that my thing? Yes, know, I think you are a person. Yeah. Because they're like, I'd make way more money if I sold these like incredibly expensive decks. And like, why do I want to sell a deck that's as cheap as possible that lasts a long time? Like, shouldn't I want to sell a deck that's as expensive as possible and lasts a short time? <laughs> but the thing right, is, that's, that's true. So in most CCGs, the following is not a slam on them. It's actually just, it's just a thing. It's just how they are. It's that you're supposed to get new cards all the time. That's the fun of them. The fun is that you can play a certain deck and then, oh, new cards come out. You change your deck. It's changing all the time. And that's, that's what keeps you hooked. I don't have any kind of moral objection to that. I think that's totally fine to have a game that on purpose changes a lot. I see the appeal of that. But sort of unrelated to business model or any kind of like deep objection or anything. It's just interesting to me to think about games that aren't like that, that that are stable. Something more like chess, like it's just there. It's around for years and years and you can study it. You can get better at it. It, It doesn't change out from underneath you all the time. It's so funny that you say that because you did make chess too. But that's just a funny analogy. Yeah, but that was like that was like two thousand five hundred years later. So <laughs> yeah, sure. So uh, it's okay if <laughs> it had a good well, run. It had a good run. Yeah, it had a good run. So, but also it's the it's the difference between changing things for change's sake versus changing things for a reason because you're trying to fix a problem. So if you want to change things for change's sake, I don't think that's bad, but that's just a style. So what if we did the different style where we don't change things for change's sake, we make it as stable as possible. And then the business people say, well, what are you doing? That doesn't make any money. Maybe it doesn't, but I think the grand experiment here is, can you get even 1% or 10th of a percent of people who like this style of game that think that that's actually awesome sounding, that it would be just incredibly cheaper to play a similar style of game. So that's what I'm hoping for. Yeah, like talking about incredibly cheaper, you said like how much would it cost to have all the top tier, we'll say six top tier decks of another CCG. And those decks can range from like $200 to $500 a piece, like just for the tournament deck itself, just the card rarities and the secondary market and all these things. Yeah, my friend was showing me some CCG decks just the other day. They ranged from 300 one of them was current popular standard deck was 800. That's unusually expensive. Usually three to five, mm-hmm. some, sometimes eight. So you're talking many, many hundreds of dollars per deck multiplied by, you said six. That's not really all the decks you could make. I mean, I mean, some, you, someone can come along and say, well, who cares about having all of them? But it's just as a thought of experiment. You know, yeah. how much would that, how much would that cost to have 
all of them? And the answer is, it's it's a question about are we talking thousands or tens of thousands of dollars? That's the debate. That's the ballpark we're in. Mm-hmm. So how much would it cost to have like literally every, be able to make every possible deck in Codex? And the answer is, depends on how our stretch goals go on this Kickstarter, but probably about $200. So again, I, I'm a little confused why people keep telling me not to mention this, but I feel like Generally, you shouldn't compete on price. You should compete on quality, on content design, quality, on, yeah. on content. Yeah, right. That is, and I think we should put that first and foremost. So I agree there. But when you are that much cheaper, like when it's not 10% cheaper, it's like the difference between... It's magnitudes. Yeah, it's magnitudes. Like thousands and thousands or $10,000 compared to $200. It's so crazy. It's just so mind-blowing that that's worth pointing out. Now, I already know people are going to be mad about this or have all these objections about it. But so far, we only talked about what if you want all of the tournament quality decks. You know, one person argued with me about this, got real hung up on the word tournament. And then I realized that it might be a little misleading because we're talking about full powered. Like, even if you don't go to a tournament, tournaments aside, just how much does it cost to have all of the most powerful decks? Okay, so what about the other end, opposite end? You're just super casual. Usually pre-cons are, I think, like... 1250 last time i checked yeah it sounds good for a deck some games have like even a premium like a 25 dollar like sort world of... champion 2015 kind of thing no well no not like that but more more like the difference between like a random smattering of cards versus hey someone put some level of thought into the thing you're buying i see yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, like how close are you getting to a real full-powered deck? So the precondens that cost like 1250 or something, no thought. They're the lowest power level. And then I have seen another style that's like $25 for not full power. Not You wouldn't actually like, it's not a real tournament deck, but it's it's getting reasonable. It's like getting close to... Like it has a theme. <laughs> yeah, it has some, some rares. You're getting within striking distance. That's like still weak, but now it's $25 for one deck. So, okay, if that's the level we're talking about, casual people that they don't need the most powerful thing, and they're talking about $12 or $20 for a deck or something, we stack up just fine. You know, we're not competing on price there. We're, we got a starter set on Kickstarter right now. It's $25 at retail, but it's $20 on Kickstarter, so $5 off. It allows for two players. It's pretty comparable. Or the core set. Gives you an even more full experience. It's $50 retail, $5 off on Kickstarter, so $45. And that lets you play, that gives you actually six heroes. So you can play a whole bunch of different decks with that because of the whole mix and match thing. I think we're still in striking distance. So I guess what I'm trying to say is that at the super high end, it's like just orders of magnitude difference. And then at the casual end, it seems comparable. We're actually cheaper by a little bit, but not something we need to, you know, go on about. Kind of the new idea I wanted to put forward is that that duality is a little misleading. And people who are upset about hearing this message like to say that the whole thing is pointless to say because there's so few people in that high-end category that who cares about them. And so my response to that is, yeah, that may be true. You know, maybe the kinds of people who want every tournament deck, who are going to spend $10,000 to own all the tournament decks, like maybe that's silly. Yeah, Yeah. it could be silly to talk about. Okay, sure. Fair point. So let's talk about a third group of people, which I think is basically everybody. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> this third this third group, like it sounds like we already named everybody. We got two ends of the spectrum. But my claim is that it's really this third group that's big slice of the pie. That is people who they are not going to spend $10,000 or even $1,000 on decks. They would say that is crazy, but they want to play full powered stuff. They don't want to play some gimp deck versus their friends. 
So it's not that they're out there spending all this money. They're just, they're either not playing at all or they are playing, but at a lower power level or they're kind of scraping by, or they've kind of found a budget deck that is like, you know, the only one they could afford. But still this category of person, I think cares a lot about having access to all of the decks. It's just that they don't, <laughs> they, you know, they yeah. want it, but they can't. So that's who we are, I think, speaking to the most. Someone who's like in the market of trying to put together a reasonable strength deck and should they really spend that $50 on it? Like that's what, they're not in the $10,000 category. Should they spend 50? Should they spend 100? And then here, we're trying to offer them every deck <laughs> for yeah. in, in the couple hundred dollar range. All 1,000 plus of them. So it's so outside the box. It's so different than what's being done that it's difficult for us to get people to wrap their minds around it. Do you have some other way of explaining this that could help me out or something? Just a little kind of asterisk there is particularly speaking to the low end. Someone that enjoys games, maybe doesn't like to sink too much time into any one game, you know. They just yeah. want like the cheapy version and, and, you know, they'll have some fun with it. You know, interesting to see what the game's about and then kind of move on. When you play mm -hmm. a starter pack like the cheapest possible you know $12 random smattering of cards you know maybe this is like a pessimistic way of pointing it out or a cynical look at things but it's almost intended to not really be that interesting it's intended to just kind of catch your interest enough where you'll want to get the real cards but in codex even the most basic thing you can get the starter deck is actually really interesting to play with and designed to be like a full game. I think that's worth pointing out. It's, you're not getting the same quality of experience in those cases. Well, it's true that if you buy the starter deck or the core set at 45 with all of red and all of green, those are all real. And as you get other decks or something, like you're still using, like, okay, you got Zane as the anarchy hero. Well, later on, you still have Zane. <laughs> you still have all the anarchy cards that you can combine with anything else. Yeah, you were playing the real deal from day one. That's what you're getting at yeah like the core set in particular like i'm a green player i like mono green a lot like i might play some multicolored stuff every once in a while but i really like green so one thing that people get hung up on is okay well you're telling me i have to spend 200 to buy all the factions like well not really i mean you can just play green and that was kind of a design goal of this game i imagine was just yeah. hey let's Definitely. Let's just let you play the thing you want to play and not have to, you know, find these really complex and multicolor powerful things that you don't really want to play. I just want to play green and I can do that. Yeah, the, just the by, pick up and go aspect. Products. Yeah, like, right. You don't have to assemble some complicated thing to get going like mono red. Really solid. I made sure of that mono green. That's your favorite. Like, that's what's in the well, box I'm already. But uh, <laughs> not to derail too much, but. That, mm -hmm. There were many, many battles fought over making sure that monocolor was very good and that if you mm -hmm. just buy the red versus green set that you could walk into a tournament or you could, you know, play against the most serious player in the world and have a really fair chance of winning. Correct. Like, we went very far out of our way to make sure that that was the case. Yeah, like, I expect to see a lot of mono red. A lot. I really didn't want the case to be like, yeah, you can make 1,000 plus decks, but if you use just like the basic thing that you bought, you're an idiot. <laughs> you know, that yeah, we yeah. did not want that. So, and, and just for the record, like, yeah, without, you know, tuning it in any way, that's very likely going to be the case. So we actually had to do design work and balancing work to undo that. Oh, yeah. And to make yeah sure if we, if we had done no work, then just kind of imagine 1,000 dots on a line 
from the weakest to strongest, even if they're all playable, but you know, some of them are stronger than others. And then just sort of randomly drop some six dots onto that line that are the six monocolored decks. Just by the odds of probability, several of those are going to be in the bottom half, which is, it still could be okay, right? If Even if they're all in the bottom half, the band of power we're talking about is small enough that it's too bad, but we still didn't want that. We wanted to make sure that you were just never stupid <laughs> for playing the yeah. thing we sold you like just or the, or the thing you up. like sure yeah right. or the thing you like and to talk about the power level of the starter deck too like okay it's a starter set i have a multicolor build that actually uses the neutral starting deck because the neutral starting deck is awesome and it's <laughs> nothing to do with like oh it's a really simple thing that you know you're just supposed to use to learn the game it's actually really powerful and there's a few effects that i can get from the neutral starter that i can't from the other colors that i'm playing in that deck so i totally rock the neutral starter sometimes for a multi-build and it's like really strong yeah, we won't get into the exact rules of how you combine them or whatever, but just the gist that some people should take away is that you know, there's a couple rules you need to know when you combine these colors. But the cards that are in the starter set are a little different, and they're actually easier to combine with everything else. So it's a good thing you brought that up, because if we didn't say anything about this, some people might think, oh, starter set, it's just like some garbage cards. They suck. They're for beginners. Okay, yeah, they're generally simple. But they are also for experts. They're for beginners and experts. And if you want to graduate, you know, from that set to the other sets, you have an easier time combining that with other colors. You know, not yeah, a harder I, time. You get a little bonus if you do. Yeah, I consider there being seven factions in Codex. There are not six. There are seven. Neutral is super real. <laughs> Cool. So we've covered the theme, kind of the surface level RTS and also gone deep into like, what are the real parallels that also brought us to talk about a lot of the mechanics and why they are the way they are. And then there's this whole customizability aspect where it's limited and there's this kind of counterintuitive thing where because it's limited, there's way more choices <laughs> as opposed yeah. to the limited sounds bad. We need a new marketing term here, right? Optimized. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's optimized customization. There you go. And s- instead of the alternative is, well, degenerate is, kind of, is too harsh. I don't want to say degenerate because... Well, you could put it this way. I mean, if you constrained your superfluous spending of your money, that'd be a good thing. So we just constrained <laughs> your ability to... Break the game and build bad decks. Right. And then finally, we've decided to make a game that just inherently somehow doesn't make as much money because it's supposed to last a long time and you don't even need a bunch of new cards. But hopefully hopefully that can make money because that's like a good and true thing out there for the world, right? And so maybe there will be a whole lot of people that want to support that, want to help it flourish, want to cast their vote in favor of that. That's what I'm hoping. That's this grand experiment that's taken 10 years to fully run. And we're about to see if anyone cares, if anyone wants to support this sort of thing. All right. That's uh, pretty much all I wanted to cover. Just want to say thank you to everyone who is pledging on Kickstarter right now. And I'm so glad to finally see this game get to the end after such a long road. Okay. What about you guys? Yeah. <laughs> I'm excited. I'm excited to play it. I just want to finally play it, you know. I've, I played it a lot, but I want like the final, final, like ready I'm to go. I'm excited when the Kickstarter hits $10 million and we get an online version. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> Don't talk about that. No. I want online codex. We want me to play it. What does it mean? Sterling, any, any comment on online codex? Uh, I would love to have it. Uh, can, can you confirm online codex at $10 million? <laughs> I think we could afford it there. I was going to okay, ask the question. Okay, I have it on record then. Okay. I was going to ask the question: uh, Will the Kickstarter Codex make more? Will the Codex Kickstarter make more than exploding kittens? 
I was hoping that, you know, we could manufacture a fake story out of that. Like just get everyone asking that question. Will it make more than exploding kittens? And then maybe it would. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> just to make it self-fulfilling. Doesn't that get yeah, that yeah. gets linked around and it actually starts to make you think. I'm not trying to say exploding kittens like shouldn't have made that much or I don't have whatever. It's fine. Yeah, I, I love Matthew Inman and the oatmeal. It's actually awesome totally. that you know bravo great job the reason i bring it up is not to push him down but rather to just kind of highlight well that's a very simple game it's just a world apart from what we're doing so wouldn't it be awesome if this kind of game that's like a really interesting strategy game that has had years and years of development and lots of thought behind it it's doing things so differently by making a thousand decks playable like, and some wouldn't really it be interesting? Art. Oh yeah, the art. I mean, the art took at least three years of just art development. It turned out fantastic. I really wanted to make it very consistent, and so that's part of why it took so long, just to make sure that it all really matched. Uh, the heroes do look different. The, the heroes look the same as each other, as kind of a nod to Yomi, and then everything else is a new style that's new to Codex. Yeah, the art turns out fantastic. Most card games would think it was totally insane to spend that long. <laughs> <laughs> or that much money on art. But my point is, wouldn't it be awesome if something like that could also be up there in the millions? I'd just be, even if it wasn't my thing, I don't know. I'd just be happy right. to it, see. It would, it would just prove that there's an audience for it. It would just prove that these yeah, games yeah. Like, want to exist and people want them to exist. And again, that's nothing bad about Exploding Kittens. That game's really cool. But <laughs> I see what you mean, though. Just... Let's have all audiences of all kinds of games be interesting and, and lucrative and, you know, just let's make good games. Let's have good games. Yeah. Well, that's a positive note to end on. I hope everyone who's doing good stuff is successful. <laughs> no matter what it is. All right. Go check out the Kickstarter. Please support us. Thank you.